Michael Wise, an associate professor in UNT's Department of History, whose expertise includes the histories of food, agriculture, and animal-human relationships, has long studied Native American food traditions, especially that of the Blackfeet tribe of Montana. His first book, Producing Predators, which investigated the history of American and Canadian campaigns to exterminate gray wolves in the Northern Rockies during the late 19th and early 20th centuries, delved into the role of day-to-day physical practices, such as farming, hunting, cooking, and exercising, as narrative performances that often go unrecognized. In addition, Wise is the editor of the Food and Foodways book series, wrote a chapter about Blackfeet food sovereignty for the book Food Across Borders, and is currently working on a book entitled Native Foods. It's unfortunate, he says, that the Thanksgiving holiday and American society generally obscures the importance of Native culture and Native foods. In spite of all the ways that Thanksgiving has evolved as a holiday, uh, for instance, you know, uh, more recently, um, you know, we have a Native American Heritage Month during the month of November. I think a lot of people don't realize, you know, that that uh, holiday um, created during the 1980s, that month was actually originally just Native American Heritage Week that coincided with the Thanksgiving holiday. Um, so the point is that too often, Native history and Native food history in particular seem to drop off the page with the first Thanksgiving. It seemed to drop off the page after 1620. On this episode of UNT Pod, join me, Erin Crystallis, as I talk with Dr. Wise about the mythology surrounding Thanksgiving, the history of Native American hunting and farming, and how the Anglo-American approach to meat distribution affected tribes like the Blackfeet, as well as the larger cultural attitude toward food production. the stories that we typically grow up hearing about Thanksgiving uh, in its present form, the holiday dates back only to the end of the 19th century. Considering that, what would you say is some of the most pervasive mythology surrounding Thanksgiving that needs to be dispelled? First of all, what I'm really interested in is how the holiday has evolved. Um, And, you know, certainly the ways that people celebrate Thanksgiving in the 21st century differ quite a bit from how people celebrated it a century ago, or even, you know, 20 or 30 years ago. But, um, you know, I guess, you know, from a historical point of view, if you look at the sources, uh, you know, in a conventional historical way about what we know about the supposed first Thanksgiving that took place after the pilgrims in Plymouth survived their first winter and successfully harvested their first crop of corn. uh, We have only two paragraph long entries and colonial journals basically that tell us what happened. Um, And in addition to that, we have a much more clearer picture, although it's been underappreciated over the years through Wampanoag oral traditions describing what probably took place at the first Thanksgiving. And so we have this notion, for instance, that the pilgrims had prepared this huge feast and then invited their Wampanoag neighbors to join them. Uh, In reality, Most likely what was happening was that in the sort of uh, longstanding English tradition dating back to the manorial system and feudalism in England, 
where every fall following the harvest, you know, the Lord of the manor would summon all of his feudal servants to exercise their arms, as they would put it. In other words, have like a militia review and military exercises and shoot their guns, for instance. Um, he would break out, you know, ale and maybe liquor and things like that to sort of regale uh, his, uh, his manorial servants in the party. And so this is probably part of what was actually taking place during the first Thanksgiving, according to Wampanoag traditions, uh, some Wampanoags nearby heard gunfire and came rushing down to the to, uh, to Plymouth to see what was going on. Um, and so, you know, what we ended up having then, uh, actually beginning, I suppose, uh, later on in the 17th century, um, the first uh, actual um, state-sanctioned Thanksgivings were celebrated in New England. But as you mentioned, it's not until the 19th century, and especially the end of the 19th century, that the kind of holiday mythology surrounding the first Thanksgiving came to prominence in American cultural uh, practice. Um, so, you know, all holidays, all traditions are invented. Um, and Thanksgiving is one that has been reinvented uh, for centuries and will continue to be reinvented as well. Well, one of your areas of expertise is in food history, uh, particularly as it relates to the American West. And you've written that scholars have begun to approach food as a multidimensional set of cultural, material, and environmental practices vital to the conceptions and experiences of identity, health, and place. It's also been written, for example, that Thanksgiving expresses and reaffirms values and assumptions about American cultural and social unity with its celebration of family, home, and nation. What are some of the ways in which food informs cultural identity? Food, I think, is really central to cultural identity in ways that a lot of scholars have overlooked, historians in particular. So to begin with, um, I think it's important for historians and others who are interested in studying the past to begin to look beyond what historians conventionally call, conventionally call the archive. For instance, these old documents like the ones that I mentioned um, and you know, think about other kinds of ways that people tell narrative stories about their present that get recorded in forms that don't correspond with the kind of material textual work that historians in a very kind of colonial and Eurocentric methodological perspective have taken as a sort of um, foundation of historical scholarship the foundation of you know, professional historical writing and analysis. So um, in my own work in food history and in food studies, I take an interdisciplinary approach with a turn towards a few other different fields of study. For one, anthropologists have for a long time been interested in how everyday practices, the sort of quotidian things that people do uh, like eating without really thinking about it, present in and of themselves some sort of narrative content, some sort of story about themselves. And, you know, so what's more ubiquitous, I suppose, than eating? So this is one of my interests as a historian is to almost take an ethnographic reading of the historical sources um, to think about the practices that are being left unsaid, to think about the stuff that people don't really write down, the stuff that, you know, therefore using a kind of conventional archival approach, we don't have very good access to. 
Um, and so, you know, I think once you start looking at food from that perspective, you realize that it becomes a sort of subtle, but very powerful form of political expression. It's a way of invoking notions of heritage or community belonging. I mean, of the sort that uh, so many critics of the Thanksgiving holiday over the years, like uh, you indicated, um, you, know, uh, you know, critics of Thanksgiving have described it as a uh, nationalistic holiday that celebrates settler colonialism and vanishes Indians from American history after 1620. Um, and I think that those critics are correct in critiquing those particular ways of celebrating the holiday. Uh, and I think that the holiday's power um, in large part comes from the fact that a lot of people who have celebrated the holiday over decades or even centuries have recapitulated these kinds of settler colonial narratives, for instance, in these practices that they don't assume have any kind of cultural content, but in fact are really the home of where culture is performed and rehearsed on an everyday basis. So another place that I turn in my scholarship as well uh, is actually um, indigenous studies, the field of critical indigenous studies and native studies where, you know, native scholars have critiqued the kind of dominant methodological practices and categories of analysis that have framed historical scholarship in the university setting, um, you know, really for the last two centuries since the origins of the discipline. Um, and so I think that if we look at some of these uh, native perspectives on the significance of food in daily life or the significance of food as a form of structuring historical memory or telling stories, um, you know, without necessarily like just copying it or appropriating it, but to use it instead as a source of critique for the Eurocentric analytical visions that cohere in the historical profession. And that offers us another way of really coming up with some profoundly different alternatives for thinking about the significance of food in history. Um, and not just, you know, food as sort of this foundational element of culture, but food as a historical vessel that in and of itself contains these historical narratives that communicate certain visions or facets of past experiences. Well, I know you just mentioned too that there tends to be a lack of archival material because you're talking about that more everyday, you know, um, activity of, of eating, for example. How hard is it to piece together that history of food without those more recorded stories? That's a good question. I mean, it's, it's very difficult. Um, I think part of what's at stake here is recognizing the fact that historians just aren't capable in many cases of producing what they've often claimed to be able to produce, which is a sort of master narrative of the past. That's not to say that there is no um, sort of truthful or honest way of telling history, just that the notion of a master narrative is not a truthful telling of history. Um, what historians have to work with, whether it's you know with the kind of conventional archival documents that I described, that still, I mean, uh, you know, comprise a substantial part of of my own research, my own work, um, you know, there isn't a single case where a historian can sort of present a, an entire 
factual accounting of something that happened, all tied up between covers of a manuscript or a book um, or in any kind of a product. And so, um, so I think, you know, as our discipline evolves, as historians seek out interdisciplinary partners and begin to rethink some of the um, historical transformations that have shaped our own discipline and our own thinking, it'll actually sort of jam us up a little bit less so that we'll be able to um, hold ourselves to standards that, for instance, include trying to use our research to develop more usable paths for future looking forward thinking um, ideas and issues uh, and move us away, move the discipline away from this sort of old paradigm of trying to you know, tell these um, elaborate uh, narratives um, you know, when in, you know, in a lot of cases, it's just not possible um, because we don't have the sort of textual letters or diaries or census records in order to tell a story. I mean, it's quite interesting. And you know, this, is, this is obviously a problem that I think is connected to this kind of colonial scholarly framework that I mentioned earlier. Well, much of your research focuses on the Blackfeet tribe of Northern Montana, which today remains one of the 10 largest tribes in the US. Tell us about the tribe, including the role food played in their culture prior to the late 19th century. So I came to the Blackfeet, I guess, um, through this interest in food. Um, the Blackfeet historically occupied the high plains in the front country of the Northern Rockies from north of Edmonton, Alberta, south to beyond Yellowstone National Park um, and you know, east of the Missouri River and out into the Northern Plains. So an enormous uh, region of North America. Um, and you know, most people historically know the Blackfeet as one of these quintessential bison hunting tribes of the Northern Plains. That's sort of their reputation. Uh, and one of the uh, kind of historical narratives that, um, that I've been writing against uh, is this notion that the Blackfeet were, for instance, nomads who sort of just wandered around this enormous expanse uh, hunting bison and other animals. You know, this is sort of a central a misconception that is central to narratives of settler colonialism in North America. Um, and this really represents one of the core thrusts of my own uh, writing and my own work is um, to sort of overturn that notion because that's the notion that justified the dispossession of Blackfeet land ownership in the 19th and 20th centuries, as well as the narrative that justified the dispossession of native labor to a large extent as well. Uh, the reason being that if you just think about a community of people as being nomads that wander around somewhat aimlessly hunting, then it becomes easy to dispossess them in the sense that they're not using the land efficiently or productively, which is exactly what the United States Office of Indian Affairs and other organs of cultural assimilation and colonial conquest sought to do um, through the confinement of the Blackfeet to, uh, to their reservation in the United States and of other Blackfoot peoples in Alberta um, on, on different Canadian Indian reserves. Yeah, so, so the Blackfeet were not nomads. 
Um, according to Blackfoot scholars, uh, Rosalind Lapierre, for instance, at the University of Montana, and I mean, and, and many others, um, you know, uh, the Blackfeet made bison come to them. Um, and, you know, one of the ways that they did this was through something that some people might be familiar with, um, uh, buffalo jumps, historically, or what the Blackfeet called piskins. Um, these sites and the uh, kind of, you know, rolling plains and foothills below the northern Rockies where there were cliffs of, you know, I don't know, 30 to 50 to 100 feet high, um, where uh, Blackfeet hunters, sometimes dressed as wolves, uh, would run bison off of cliffs. Um, and so, you know, this was a lot more difficult maybe than it sounds. Uh, it required, in fact, a massive infrastructure, biophysical infrastructure and environmental re-engineering of, of the landscape to facilitate. Um, so um, archeologists, uh, have been in the business over the last 50 years or so identifying a number of these sites. There are literally hundreds of them. Um, and one of the commonalities, for instance, is that they have massive drive lanes constructed out of rock cairns that are positioned every so often, maybe 20 or 30 feet or so, um, you know, uh, far enough apart that the amount of labor to produce them um, you know, uh, wouldn't be so taxing on, on the Blackfeet close enough that they would be close enough, kind of like traffic cones to prevent a herd of bison running in a, in a direction, you know, from veering out of the drive lane. And these piskins, uh, even after the arrival of horses in the 18th century and guns, um, where piskins sort of lost their practical or their immediate relevance um, as hunting instruments, they retained their importance um, as sort of communal sites for different, for different Blackfeet communities um, that would trace their sort of kinship or genealogical lineage to these particular piskins and these particular sites. Well, you just discussed um, the Blackfeet as bison hunters, um, but then bison began to disappear in around 1883, is that right? Yeah, they, um, yeah, bison never disappeared, but yeah, around 1883, um, there weren't any bison left on the Blackfeet reservation, especially for Blackfeet to hunt, yeah. Well, and then they also had the constraints of reservation boundaries and the fact that they were no longer able to produce their own subsistence by hunting, which led to an era of destitution and in many cases, starvation for the tribe. I'm wondering if you can discuss how the Office of Indian Affairs used access to meat as a way to assimilate the Blackfeet. So in the years after the American Civil War, American colonists began streaming into Montana. Um, Canadian colonists also began streaming into areas of Southern Alberta that were the center of Blackfoot homelands for centuries and for thousands of years, really. Um, and so, you know, people have often pointed towards uh, the origins of sort of a, this tragedy of native subsistence as the overhunting and the near extermination of bison in the late 19th century. But I think it's more appropriate to think of the arrival of cattle ranching as, the sort of proximate, uh, 
the proximate historical reason for, um, for this really massive colonial transformation that um, didn't just affect the Blackfeet, but reverberated all across Indian country and the sort of grassy interior of North America. Um, so the reason why is because cattle ranchers wanted access to all of this grass, all of these, you know, hundreds of thousands of square miles that the Blackfeet had been crossing through their seasonal rounds, um, that the Blackfeet had dominated for centuries, um, you know, with, with bison hunting sites uh, across, um, you know, across the foothills of the Northern Rockies and out onto the plains. So after the American Civil War, um, under the sort of ironically named federal peace policy, what President Grant called it, uh, which was a set of policies um, justified to prevent uh, native communities from fighting one another. The Grand Administration redoubled its efforts, federal efforts to confine native people on reservations. So this, this confinement, as you might imagine, um, severely restricted those Blackfeet foodways, those Blackfeet ways of, of agriculture, of cultivation, of hunting, of subsistence, unable to continue their seasonal rounds, um, unable to reach their sort of customary places of these seasonal migrations. Um, the Blackfeet began starving to death on the reservation. Um, in effect, the federal government by confining them to the reservation had taken away their means of subsistence. And this was a critical move for the federal government and also subordinating their labor. One of the first things in response to this mass starvation in the winter of 1883 on the Blackfeet reservation was uh, the issue of government owned cattle to the tribe. Um, and these cattle uh, was presumed would basically become the instrument of civilizing the Blackfeet, of transforming the Blackfeet from bison hunters into cattle herders, um, and basically making them the sort of subordinate cog in this emerging um, national and international meat industry where um, you know cattle were raised on the open ranges of of the Great Plains um, from Texas to Alberta. Uh, and then their bodies transformed into meat and shipped all across the United States, across the Atlantic Ocean uh, to England, Europe and beyond. Um, and so, yeah, this is, a, a, this is a central moment in Blackfeet history. It's a central moment really in the history of colonialism in North America as well. Um, and I think often kind of an underlooked or yeah, underlooked element of, of American history in general um, that you know, this confinement wasn't just sort of uncomfortable or inconvenient or something but that confinement to a reservation uh, basically forced Blackfeet communities to completely reorient many of their uh, ways of life. You also wrote that the Office of Indian Affairs wanted to use slaughterhouses and butcher shops as a way to disassociate meat from its animal origins, a move that was counter to the customs of the Blackfeet tribe in which the men would hunt and the women would handle the meat preparation. 
what exactly was the logic behind slaughterhouses as a quote nonviolent method of food production versus the hunting practices of the Blackfeet, which the government characterized as predatory? Yeah, I've written a lot about slaughterhouses as this supposedly nonviolent form of producing meat. And again, this maybe is a good example of some of my borrowing from anthropology, um, in particular anthropologists who have studied um, closely the, you know, the technical details of slaughter, um, the technical details of what takes place uh, within a slaughterhouse. Um, yeah, slaughterhouses have also long interested me. Um, my grandfather and my own father both worked in a slaughterhouse. Um, and so, um, you know, I think in, in some ways, um, I've just been kind of drawn to the various problems um, that often are left unspoken in American culture and in American history when it comes to um, the role of animals as food. What slaughterhouses enabled, slaughterhouses haven't been around for forever. Slaughterhouses were pioneered in the late, in, in the middle to the late 19th century in the United States. Um, really in Chicago, sort of the home of the slaughterhouse um, in the years before and after the Civil War, um, you know, as sites for the mass death and disassembly of animals and the production of their bodies into meat. Earlier in the 19th century, if people wanted to eat meat, they were largely responsible for killing it themselves. Or if they didn't kill it themselves, they, they purchased their meat locally. But, um, but what, you know, famously reoriented Americans' relationship to meat and eventually most people's relationship to meat around the globe was the creation of a slaughterhouse as an enclosed um, place to centralize the production of meat. So the violence of killing animals was taken outside of public view. Another, um, you know, another key innovation of the slaughterhouse in the American tradition, uh, for instance, was the assembly line. In fact, what Henry Ford called the assembly line uh, actually began its life in the Chicago meat packing plants a generation earlier as the disassembly line. And what this did was it took a process that had previously been an individual's process from start to finish of killing and butchering an animal into uh, a divided process where many individuals, perhaps hundreds of individuals would each perform the same particular cut or the same particular operation along the disassembly line. Um, so one of my arguments is that what this offered uh, was a way of making the production of meat nonviolent by basically uh, giving everyone plausible deniability that they were the ones who killed the animal. And so it's that sort of plausible deniability or that ambiguity that represents another kind of key cultural um, difference between the hunting world of the, of the Blackfeet and um, and this sort of brave new world of cattle herding that the Office of Indian Affairs tried to usher in. In the 1880s, when the Office of Indian Affairs built the slaughterhouse uh, for the first time, they did so in an effort to centralize the killing of animals on the Blackfeet Reservation, both as a sort of um, necessary step in the cultural assimilation of the Blackfeet to these sort of Anglo-American standards of, of um, you know, propriety, um, yeah, you know, they didn't, for instance, want, um, as one inspector put it, Blackfeet women out in the field paddling up the blood and gore ad libitum uh, from carcasses of animals that they had killed. Um, 
They wanted it confined. They wanted it to be taken out of public view. And this I also uh, argue was part and parcel of this greater kind of colonial process of trying to transform the landscape of the North American West into a productive landscape uh, rather than a predatory landscape. I know, you know, the Blackfeet linked the history of their hunting practices to non-human carnivores, especially wolves. Even today, the tribe maintains that they learned to hunt bison through an empathetic relationship with wolves. Can you describe how that kinship played a role in the tribe's hunting and eating practices? Yeah, the sort of uh, this human-animal kinship that you mentioned, this was a vital aspect of uh, Blackfeet hunting practices you know, dating back again, hundreds if not thousands of years. Um, you know, a number of Blackfeet uh, scholars have sort of insisted that the Blackfeet learned to hunt bison through the sort of empathetic relationship with wolves. Um, you know, watching wolves hunt communally, for instance, to bring down the animals um, and then adapted it to their own uh, sort of ways of, of of living, their own form of hunting, their own form of livelihood. Um, yeah, and so, uh, you know, I guess the net result of this is that another kind of element of these colonial transformations that affected Indian country and North America, and the High Plains, and the Blackfeet, and then, you know, many other native communities um, was this transformation from thinking of animals as kin, even those that were hunted and eaten as food, um, to reconceiving of animals as private property, uh, something that was owned. Um, and I think this is a, also a fundamental difference that sort of, you know, to return to the previous question, uh, has sort of informed my own uh, vegan thinking as well. Um, you know, thinking about animals not necessarily as property, um, I mean, I think once we can, if, if it is possible to get that frame of identifying animals out of our minds, uh, then that gives us some new opportunities of thinking about animals. And, and like I said, I mean, you know, I'm not interested in sort of co-opting these, you know, pre-colonial Blackfoot conceptions of, uh, of animals, but using them as a powerful basis for critiquing the ways that in our colonial, settler colonial world, um, we interact with cattle, with livestock, and with other animals as well. For Americans in this Anglo-American tradition, they conceived of animals as we still do um, in, in our American tradition as property. Even if you sort of identify as your, with your pet dog as being a member of your family or something like that, it's still um, you know, property in the sense that uh, you are the pet owner, you are the property owner and that ownership I suppose entails a certain number of responsibilities. And so it's very difficult for us then from our 21st century point of view to sort of wrap our minds around this alternative universe in which human and animal relationships are structured through kinship. So that you could be a family member with uh, the bison herd that you're going to drive off of a cliff, for instance. Well, and you discussed earlier as well um, that the Office of Indian Affairs used the restriction of foodways as a way to force labor, um, also as a tool for assimilation. 
But one thing you've also noted in your research is that Native people responded to these assimilation efforts by reworking their own understandings of agriculture to fit within the new colonial parameters. Uh, for instance, creating alternatives to an emerging industrial food system that were hidden in plain sight. Can you talk more about how Native Americans negotiated specific food relationships within the colonial context and their own culture? What's fascinating about Native food history is that it was ongoing, is ongoing up into the present. Um, and, you know, so for those of us who are interested in envisioning the kind of best ways to resolve the contemporary food dilemmas that confront us, Native food history is a good place to go to go looking for uh, some examples of, of resilience and adaptability. And as you put it, um, yeah, thinking about ways to take a system that's not designed for you but to figure out ways to turn it to your advantage. Um, so I think that those are some profound lessons from native food history that, uh, that I wish that people would, um, would be more interested in studying or at least uh, have better access uh, to learning about. Um, so yeah, so for instance, um, you know, a lot of my work on the Blackfeet Reservation and elsewhere uh, has had to do with the history of land allotment, allotment policy in the United States. Um, which was the forced privatization of Native American land ownership at the end of the 19th century and the early 20th century. It was, uh, um, you know, it had predecessors to the Dawes Act uh, in 1887, but that's um, sort of the piece of federal legislation that's most associated with it. Uh, and so, you know, um, the Dawes Act has a really um, profound legacy in shaping um, native dispossession in the United States. By most estimates, it was responsible for sort of diminishing by two thirds, the number of square miles of land under native land ownership by the time allotment was ended in, uh, in 1934. Yeah, so how did Indian people take the forced privatization of land ownership and turn it towards their own ends? Well, they did it in many ways. Uh, families selected allotments in adjacent parcels, for instance, and they used those parcels to uh, sort of start their own farming co-ops where they could use the economy of scale rather than sort of being these individuated small farmers. Uh, they could, um, you know, carve out a much larger agricultural enterprise with maybe a thousand acres um, on the Blackfeet Reservation um, in uh, sort of the tail end of the First World War, um, 1918, 1919, about 100 years uh, ago from now, actually. Um, a number of uh, Blackfeet farmers formed these farming cooperatives as well, uh, where they um, basically took um, sort of pre-existing principles of the kind of egalitarian relationships that had long characterized Blackfeet food ways and Blackfeet food traditions, uh, and then converted them to this kind of brave new world of capitalist individual agriculture um, by you know, buying threshing machines together, um, by uh, coordinating their labor at harvest time. Um, and you know, <laughs> to a certain extent, these, uh, these practices weren't very dissimilar from the kind of new cooperative forms that a number of non-native farmers began taking uh, in the years after World War I when they were faced with you know, dramatic collapses in the price of wheat 
um, and the other kinds of, uh, you know, farm crises uh, that American historians <laughs> often use the word farm crises. It seems like, you know, there never hasn't been a farm crisis in, America, farm crisis in American history, but, um, but yeah, so, uh, so the reworking of, uh, of allotments to suit, um, you know, in, in other words, rather than to suit the sort of assimilative role that the federal government had in mind, which was to transform American Indians into these sort of small farmers, um, to use allotments to create, I guess what you might call a more like industrial enterprise, a cooperative enterprise rather than an individual enterprise, to use allotments in a way that was responsive to the refashioning of indigenous tradition and indigenous custom uh, and kinship and relationship. Native people in North America and around the world are faced with this sort of uh, this um, devil's bargain between either having vanished or having become modern and therefore no longer Indian or something like that. And I think we certainly see this in terms of today, Americans infatuations with native cuisine and native food where uh, it seems, you know, every day there's some kind of a new product um, or, you know, it used to be quinoa, for instance, maybe 20 years ago, that was a sort of emerging indigenous superfood, um, you know, but what about corn? What about, uh, you know, what about the great Northern bean? You know, these are all native superfoods, uh, native foods that have become just part of the industrial mix of American and global cuisines all over the, you know, uh, and you know, yet their you know their native histories aren't really recognized. Um, uh, in particular, you know, their native histories perhaps after the 17th century encounter of the Pilgrims and the Wampanoags. Um, yeah, so that's a that's the native food history that I'm fascinated in. Again, it's this sort of history of adaptation and transformation and uh, and change. Well, I know you just um, mentioned a couple of staples of indigenous cuisine. Um, I'm wondering if you could talk about some of the other foods that are, are really important to, to Native American uh, food history and also food present, obviously, but um, and also why you think they do have a much lower visibility in the US and Canada as say compared to Southeast Asia or Central America or these other cuisines that are really popular. Yeah, that's a really difficult question to answer and a question that I've thought about a lot. Uh, I mean, I think, you know, to begin with, uh, we're in the fortunate moment now that uh, Native American cuisine um, is actually gaining a prominence um, that I don't think it's really perhaps ever had in, in you know, the modern American food scene, you know, um, so Sean Sherman, for instance, um, you know, uh, the, the sous chef is a title of uh, one of his books, um, you know, a restaurateur, um, you know, who focuses on the kind of adaptive and creative use of native ingredients, and native techniques in an updated way um, to kind of, you know, you know, recapture native cooking, not in the sense of like traditional dishes, but the reinvention and the ongoing adaptation of native food and native cuisine. Um, you know, there's a, a Lois Ellen Frank in uh, New Mexico, for instance, who's also been at the forefront of this uh, revitalization of native American um, cuisine in, in the United States, um, going back now for decades. Um, 
Yeah, and so I think that, uh, I mean, so the good news is that um, there is a sort of native cuisine that is becoming more visible and more prevalent. Um, and I don't think that even, you know, even 10 years ago, I don't think that was really so much the case, but it is now. Um, and, uh, you know, I, you know why, why is that? And I think that goes back again to the sort of, um, to this narrative about native disappearance that, um, that, you know, after the first Thanksgiving, natives disappear from the narrative. Um, and what was native becomes a white possession, becomes a possession of the pilgrims, um, becomes um, Thanksgiving dinner. Uh, that is very much this kind of uh, tradition that's not associated despite Native American Heritage Month falling in November with American Indian history, but that's associated with the history of settler colonialism. And so I think, you know, as the holiday evolves and evolves beyond just sort of uh, bringing in Native American Heritage Month, um, you know, to 1620, but not beyond 1620, as it becomes to include, um, yeah, the persistence and the presence of Native cuisine and uh, Native adaptations all the way to the present. I think that um, in time will start to overthrow this dominant narrative of Indian disappearance of, of, of native vanishing that has really held sway uh, in the United States for centuries. Um, and again, is one of the kind of uh, fundamental narrative elements of settler colonialism and the kind of erase and replace mentality of you know, that's been enshrined not only in the Thanksgiving holiday, but that's been enshrined, frankly, in American history more generally, um, in which, you know, Americans in their history courses are often taught to identify uh, with the pilgrims or identify with the United States nation state. Um, yeah, at the expense of identifying with native people. Um, and of course, and of course, many others as well. Thank you for listening to UNT Pod. To learn more about Dr. Wise's research, please see the links in our show notes. You can also find a link in our show notes to Native American and Indigenous charities you can support. And don't forget to stay connected with us on Twitter at UNT Social and on Instagram at UNT. Until next time, be safe.